This is Tending Seeds, a podcast about my adventures in homesteading and herbalism. I'm Sarah Schuster, and I'll be your host. Thanks for being here today. Hey friends, this is episode 35 of the Tending Seeds podcast. We are rocking it out today with another awesome interview for you. Today we have Quinn Chakra to talk to us all about seed saving. Quinn is the farmer and seed grower behind the Plant Good Seed Company. Quinn gives us an overview of how he got into growing for seed and walks us through the seed saving process. We also dive into his favorite tools for farming and seed saving, refining his process over the years, being in community with other growers, how to store your precious seeds after you've cleaned them, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode and get so much out of it. So without further ado, we'll just get right to it. Enjoy. Quinn Chakra is the owner and manager of the Plant Good Seed Company located in Ojai, California. Being a seed producer is one of his main passions. Quinn, thank you so much for being here today. I am really excited to talk to you about all things seeds and seed saving. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's great to be on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with your work already, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how the Plant Good Seed Company got started? Sure. Well, my mom lived in Ojai uh, and I came down to visit her for a season just to kind of hang out and support and uh, just spend time with her. And I quickly got involved in the agricultural scene here. And this is about 2006. I got my first job at a farm to table natural food store uh, that had a CSA farm connected to it. And they would bring the produce and they would cook it in their restaurants. And that farm was called Mono Farm, and that was the first farm that I ended up working on. And I kind of pretty much did everything uh, there. You know, we did harvesting, we did planting, got to run the machinery, the tractor, et cetera, et cetera. And then after a couple of years, my mentor slash boss, uh, Steve Sprinkle, got a larger plot of land on the other side of town. And for a while, he had two farms. And after a while, he just kind of decided that he didn't want to manage that much land. So he actually offered to transition the lease for that original farm, the very first farm that I worked on, to me. Uh, So the first farm I worked on is the first farm that I ended up managing. And that is kind of how the seed company started. It was a little less than two acres of land total. And we started off with a community supported agriculture program to just kind of get the farm up and running. And we were really interested in doing everything by hand in the beginning. Uh, I was particularly interested in, you know, true models of sustainability in terms of inputs and fertility and, you know, not using petroleum. So we did everything with hand tools, hand labor. Uh, we used the John Jevons biointensive method. I, I enlisted a few of my friends to kind of join me in this project. And it just kind of started that way, just slowly, you know, one double dug bed at a time. And within a year or so, we just got interested in seed saving and got a copy of the Seed Ambassadors free zine that's uh, distributed by Adaptive Seeds up in Sweet Home, Oregon. 
And we started saving seed from some of the crops we were growing for produce for the CSA. And then from there, we just decided that we wanted to start a seed company just out of interest. You know, there, there wasn't very much thought about, you know, a business plan or a business model or how we were going to make it work financially or anything like that. It was just really a passion project in the beginning. Um, but the seed stuff just really took off. It's, you know, there's a lot of small bioregional, you know, organic seed farms along the West Coast. But when we started the seed company in like 2011-ish, kind of 2010 informally, there was really nobody serving this area, you know, this Santa Barbara, Ventura, Los Angeles counties, huge metropolitan area. And there was just no kind of local seed company, you know, doing stuff the way some of these other seed companies along the West Coast have been doing it. So is that part just, of what pulled you guys into it? Just seeing sort of like an opportunity and something the community needed there? It kind of came up afterward. It was first, it was passion and just interest in seed. And then it was like, wow, there's nobody doing this here. And there's, there was just a lot of immediate interest in, in what we were doing. And, you know, we kind of realized that it was actually a better business model for the scale that we were working on, which, as I mentioned, was less than two acres. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. just more of a space efficient crop and, you know, you can store it and it it can last a few years if you store things properly. And yeah, it was just very tiny, tiny little steps at a time to what it has become today. Uh, Originally we were doing everything, all of the crop production on that one plot of land. Uh, But now the catalog and the network of growers is much larger than any one piece of land. And in fact, that farm I'm no longer on anymore that kind of folded in 2017. So yeah. And uh, you know, I've transcended the original team of people. I'm actually the only original person involved in running the company anymore. So my friends have since departed to other things. Yeah. Today the catalog is about, you know, it's been at times over 200 varieties, but right now it's kind of at like 175. The pandemic this year really shifted a lot of, um, it's just made it hard to maintain stocks of so many dis- dis- discrete varieties. So kind of size down the catalog this year to kind of focus on being able to have availability for folks versus sheer number of varieties. Yeah, this pandemic has definitely, I I know it's put a lot of interesting pressure on seed companies with a a bigger interest, which is great, but I can understand that probably has been tough for y'all to keep up with production and whatnot. But I mean, obviously y'all are doing something right. You're coming up on your 10 year anniversary for the company. And it sounds like things have kind of come full circle for you where, you know, I love hearing farmers talk about the stories of like, you know, the farms they first got started on and then how it evolved from there to, you know, working on someone else's farm to then getting farmland of their own. And it sounds like things really kind of came full circle for you with, uh, with Steve Sprinkle. Um, I think you mentioned that he's also kind of growing seed for your company now. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. This is the first year, you know, I've, I've wanted to, to kind of talk about it more in terms of writing and content and, 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 uh, you know, social media posts and stuff like that. But this year, the company has really 
come into its own in terms of developing a network of seed producers, a number of different farms who produce for the company. And yeah, in the beginning of the year, I asked Steve if he would be interested in producing some seed crops. And, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't really sure what he thought about it. You know, he was like, ah, okay, yeah, maybe. But when we've started, we chose to do the hibiscus, which has kind of been out of stock for most of the year. And is a very popular one in the catalog. And once these plants started getting in the ground and growing and, you know, started coming out to the field every week to, you know, check in on things and talk about it and, you know, offer, you know, clues as to when things are ready. Uh, he seemed like he got really excited about it. And, you know, now he's like, all right, Quinn, you know, we're, yeah, you know, we're all in on your plan. You just, you just tell me what you want to do. So uh, I think we're going to end up doing more this year, which I'm particularly excited about because he was kind of my first connection to farm work and now he's producing for the company. Um, but there's also other growers too, some on really small plots of land that are producing seed for the company, uh, both in uh, Southern California region and beyond. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, it sounds like you have a pretty great sort of community of not just farmers who are growing for the plant good seed company, but also that you have a pretty good working relationship with other, with other seed growers who have their own companies as well. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that kind of sense of community and, and what, what's that like for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's taken a while. I'm, I'm kind of a shy and kind of quiet person and you know, I tend to kind of you know, I'm like a little turtle and I kind of, you know, gent, you know, kind of slowly reach out to people. But yeah, I definitely feel like part of a, a, a more broader uh, seed producing community these past couple of years. I mean, attending the Heirloom Expo up in Santa Rosa, which didn't happen this year for obvious reasons. Um, that was kind of a great thing to just kind of connect with a broader uh, number of seed producers, seed companies. And it was really only the second year before, you know, we all started socializing. Um, but this year I've been working pretty closely with Kayla and Redwood up at Redwood Seeds and pretty much talking every day and just kind of, she's done a lot of fine seed cleaning that I haven't been able to do with my equipment here. So I've been able to you know, I'm not producing as much as I was in the past. You know, there's been times where I've been doing, you know, almost a hundred percent of the production. And then, you know, last year I really decided to scale it back, but this year I still did a lot of work with some seed crops around my house and uh, even some wild crafting near uh, our house. And so she has the equipment to clean the seed better than I could here. So I've kind of gotten it to this point and, you know, sending it up there and, there's a few varieties of hers that are in the catalog this year. Uh, Hungarian breadseed poppy uh, just released that and going to do a carrot uh, next spring. Yeah, it's, it's been really nice to kind of have a reciprocal relationship with another seed company and seed producer and just have that constant dialogue. And, you know, there's just so much to learn. Yeah. I love how... <laughs> You know, like the, the beginning farmer is considered anything, you know, like 10 years or less. So I've really, you know, only recently passed that, you know, beginning to intermediate phase. You just realize that every year that there's just so much to figure out that you don't know. Oh, yeah. It's a never ending process. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, but I love that there's, you know, this sense of 
community um, and cooperation over competition with other seed growers. Um, and I've found the same thing with, you know, other herb growers as well. When I, when I talk to them and just farming can be very lonely when you're, you know, a farm of, you know, one person with sometimes occasional help. And so I just love that there's, you know, this willingness to help and coordinate. And I've just found people to be so generous um, with being, you know, willing to share knowledge or like you spoke to sharing machinery and, and things like that. Um, I just love that that's an option and that that seems to be true pretty much across the board. So that's just really great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it can be a lonely and solitary thing at times. Uh, my brother back in the day, he gave me this book. I don't even know who the author is, but the title is The Lonely Furrow. Mm. And <laughs> I think that it's just very, very bleak. I think it was some book from the 60s. I really wish I could remember the author now. I think it's actually got good content in it, but it's just one of those things where I'll have you to know. look it up. I'll put it in the show notes for, for everyone. Nice. That sounds kind of up my alley because lonely and bleak. I mean, we're heading into winter. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it on my reading pile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so so you, you spoke about, you know, the transition from the CSA model, um, getting into seed saving and how there was definitely like a passion there as well as just a need in the community for that. Can you speak a little bit about what fuels your passion for seed saving? Yeah. Prior to getting involved in agriculture more like explicitly like a field and crops and vegetable stuff, uh, you know, I was really interested in wild plants, uh, you know, primitive skills, you know, just doing, doing and understanding as much as I could about the kind of basis for biological existence and, you know, the reproduction of our daily life. Uh, so I, you know, I kind of brought that ethic to the farm in terms of, you know, how we were doing things in the beginning, you know, very quickly we realized, you know, because of growth, we had to compromise and, you know, eventually ultimately ended up with a tractor and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's definitely a lot of compromise as time goes on, but I think that the, the kind of the root is just this desire to understand cycles of life from, you know, birth, death, reproduction, and it was in 2010, the summer, that's why I said the company kind of informally started maybe the year before we sold a packet um, of seed. We all traveled up to Southern Oregon and I got to see some seed farms, uh, Wolf Gulch, which was producing, you know, a number of seed crops on contract for a smattering of seed companies and then visited Richo at Strictly Medicinals or formerly horizon herbs and got to really see seed crops and be involved with seed crops for the first time. And it just had this kind of moment where I was looking out in the wolf gulch field and I was seeing like all of these plants that were just in this form that were, some of them were actually unrecognizable to me. You know, one that I could think about is like parsnip. I was like, it was parsnip that was going to seed. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that that was a parsnip. And there was just this kind of moment when I was looking at that and realizing like, there's so much more to learn about plants versus just doing, you know, produce production where you're just kind of growing the, the plant a lot of times to kind of an immature phase, harvesting it and then starting over and over again. So, you know, for me, that was kind of the aha of just realizing that there's this cycle that I really wanted to understand and learn more about from my own knowledge. 
Definitely. And it is really interesting. You know, I think a lot of our listeners grow herbs and or vegetables in some way at their homes. And it is interesting to know that like for most of us, if we're, if we're growing, you know, to harvest, to eat, to bring it inside and eat, um, we're not actually seeing that full life cycle of the plant. So can you talk maybe a little bit, you know, expand on that a little bit more in terms of like, what's different about growing for seed as opposed to like a harvest for food? Sure. It's longer. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that's probably the, the main, it's, it's a longer period of time. And in that longer window of time, I think so many challenges can come up. You know, I, everybody's got problems with their growing stuff in their garden for, for vegetables, you know, diseases or pests or something like that. And then a lot of these seed crops, some are more than a year, some are multiple years. There's just so many more challenges that can come up. Uh, during that time that you have to kind of address and keeping a plant healthy and alive longer. So there's that. And then I think there's just the the process of understanding the seed phase itself. Well, you know, what do you, you know, with so many, some plants, there's just, they're just so easy to save seed from, but other ones, you know, you, you kind of see things and you're like, well, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to get this clean? How am I going to get this to a form where it's recognizable and somebody else is going to see it and be able to plant it. So, you know, that, that could involve anything from harvest to, you know, as I kind of alluded to earlier challenges in cleaning and uh, also seed quality. You know, we, we, a lot of the early crops we worked with were actually brassicas and, you know, we learned a lot about crop failure through our brassica seed production and kind of problems that can come up around that. Just a lot more, a lot more challenging things, a lot more places to make mistakes. And, you know, ultimately for me, it's kind of, you know, mistakes are the teachers, really. It's just really frustrating at the time to be dealing with problems and like failures. You know, there's been a lot of successes and stuff like that, but it's really, you know, when I look back at things always, it's kind of the failures and the the complete washes that have kind of taught me the most about how to come back and, uh, do it better the next time or understand how to prevent a problem the next time to be more successful. Yeah. We learn so much from, from the mistakes, like you said, and, and yes, definitely frustrating when they're happening and in the moment, but hopefully we're learning and evolving. Um, for a lot of us, you know, I have listeners tell me that they have a quote unquote black thumb. And even for those that don't, you know, it can be such a struggle just to keep a plant alive from seed or seedling up until the point where you're harvesting tomatoes, for instance, or something like that. And then, so what you were speaking of about, you know, the longer scale cycle there where it's like, and then you have to keep it alive even longer and like through pest pressure and insect pressure through like, you know, the month of August or something, which is always just like a hard month to grow through. So Definitely lots yeah. of respect for those of you that are like seed saving out there at scale. Like, I mean, I do some yeah. here, but it's yeah, so, so much smaller. <laughs> yeah. And there's, you know, of course there's limitations to what you can do in every single climate as well. You know, like I, I mentioned in the beginning, we, we tried to do everything on the, that one farm and that one field that we had. And we very quickly learned one, that there's certain seed crops that are just really hard to do. And then two, the climate actually limits what we can do here. You know, one of the early crops I was passionate about before we even got involved in seed saving was sugar beet. And I subsequently found out that uh, Ventura County is actually historically was a big sugar beet producing region. Um, so I was like, oh, I, 
you know, it's, it was one of those crops that was kind of very contentious in terms of, uh, you know, GMO stuff and, you know, you know, cross contamination. I was like, wouldn't it be great to do uh, organic sugar beet seed on our, you know, field and learn very quickly that this climate is just not cold enough in the winter to be able to get those things to go to seed. So I tried multiple mm. times and it just, they just never had the the cold to vernalize appropriately and send out that seed stock. And so we just had these big, these large, large, large beets that would just never do anything. So, oh, wow. That's yeah. so frustrating. So uh, yeah. which, which like groups of plants have you found, you know, have been really successful for y'all out there? I mean, a lot. I mean, this, this is really a great area to do any kind of crop production, be it seed or otherwise, because, you know, Mediterranean, Southern California, we have really mild winters. It's like zone nine B here. You know, the crops that I am particularly interested in or kind of have settled on in terms of, you know, where I am. And, you know, the other limitation, it's not just climate. It's not just, uh, you know, it's pests, <laughs> oh, you know, for sure. what, what, you know, what you're going to be able to get to go and, and that can, you know, differ not only by region, but, you know, by being five acres down the road from somebody else here. And for the past few years that I've been living at this place, we live very close to a creek, which is dry most of the year. And there is a lot of habitat for ground squirrels around here. And I was very excited in the beginning about all these standard vegetable plants that I would be able to grow here. And then very quickly realized that almost Everything that has a succulent leafy green was getting eaten either at, you know, before I could even get it into the soil or very shortly after getting into the soil. So in this last year, after a number of years of kind of experimentation and again, a lot of mistakes, a lot of losses, I kind of settled on the mint family perennial group of plants, uh, a lot of which are, you know, Southern California natives. I've been doing more and more work with Southern California natives year over year. They're just hardy. They're, they're easy to get growing. They kind of resist a lot of pest pressure. They, a lot of them have low water and, uh, you know, they tolerate low water requirements and they tolerate kind of poor soil. So anything from like, catnip, white sage, California mugworts, hyssop, you know, it could be official hyssop or like the, you know, what they call anise hyssop or mm -hmm. Korean licorice mint, the Augustache genus plants, uh, holy basil, just looking around at what else is in front of me. Yeah. Say all kinds of sages, white sage, hummingbird sage, black sage, purple sage. Yeah. Just a lot of kind of bizarre Augustache species and other stuff grows here too, but oh yeah, lavenders. But these are the main ones that I've focused on at my house in the last two years. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, it can be so overwhelming to try, you know, to the instinct is to want to try to do all of the things. And so sometimes it's kind of helpful when <laughs> nature or some other limiting factor says, actually, like you need to, you need to scale it and focus on, you know, this thing over here instead. So, yeah, you know, I mentioned being very interested in cycles to beginning to end. So of course that kind of ties into this idea of uh, self-sufficiency, subsistence, all this kind of stuff, very much being somebody who likes to do everything and have everything around me. It actually has been kind of a dialing back and realizing that, 
oh, I don't have to do everything because uh, especially in this area, that's just flush and produce. I don't need to be a produce producer because, you know, five other of my friends are doing produce production at a far better, more, <laughs> right. more yeah, focused so scale than I am. And I can just focus on what other folks aren't doing. So it's definitely been kind of like a dialing back and just not being so ideological about that beginning to end cycle that I mentioned earlier. Right. And I'm like you, like I'm always striving for that self-sufficiency also. And I think if, there, if there's one thing that like this pandemic has shown me, it, it's the kind of like the mutual aid and community care and, and being like, I can still be quote unquote self-sufficient by nurturing these relationships with other people, like your friends that are growing vegetables, you know, we can barter, we can trade things back and forth. I don't need to grow every single herb on the planet on my little patch of ground here. You know, I, I can trade with other growers near me and that's totally fine and awesome. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's, you know, it's like not just about self-sufficiency in terms of like raw plant resources or raw, you know, survival resources. It's also about self-sufficiency in terms of having the right relationships and connections established and being able to kind of complement and lean on and help. And it's just the kind of reciprocal reciprocal human ecology or something like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 100%. So I'm really hoping that listeners to this interview might be encouraged to try some seed saving of their own, either some late crops this year, or at least for next year. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk us through the seed saving process. How does that work for you, um, either in general, or if you want to pick like a specific plant to talk us through and just give us an idea? I know it's different across, you know, various plants, of course, but. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of the, um, you mentioned, you know, the black thumb and all that kind of stuff earlier. And, you know, sometimes I joke with people, oh, yeah, you know, you do have a black thumb, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, you shouldn't try this, you know, but, you know, that's just kind of facetious. Really, I mean, that's kind of what's wonderful about this is that it really is, it's pretty straightforward and easy if you have the patience and the persistence or can kind of uh, deal with challenges. And there's just so much good literature, you know, even from the time that I started uh, with that seed ambassadors handbook to, you know, now there's just so much free and available literature uh, for people out there to find and access to kind of be able to shortcut some of these challenges that, you know, a lot of us probably experienced back in the day when there is less. And, you know, of course, even people before me, um, I work with a really simple, simple set of uh, equipments and tools and how I do seed cleaning is very, very, you know, basic, you know, I use uh, a box fan and a set of seed screens that uh, Riccio produces at Strictly Medicinals. And that's what I've done the majority of my seed cleaning with. And lately in this past couple of years, I've been acquiring more equipment based off of just my own observations and needs. So, you know, I've acquired a number of painter's canvases, which I found useful for staging crops kind of prior to their final cleaning, uh, allowing them to dry down and harvest. But in terms of like the past year or two, what I've been doing with the Mint Family Perennials is just, you know, I, I was listening to your podcast about the fall. No, no, it was the late summer subsistence, you know, gathering, you know, all the plants that you can kind of gather from the wild. And Oh, was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
great episode. Um, oh, thank you. You re- reminded me of some of the, e- I'm from the East Coast. So it just was nice to hear about some of those East Coast plants again. You know, it's also a great time, maybe a little past in some areas uh, to, you know, grab up that seed in addition to those uh, last plants for, you know, herbs or, you know, eating or otherwise. So, you know, I'm at the tail end of my season and the last thing that I've worked with and am preparing to deal with here at the house is the California mugwort. But for the sake of explanation, I mean, how I've worked with the mugwort is very, very similar to how I've worked with all of the mint family perennials, which is that I just observe, I, I look at the plants when they're past the flowering stage and I look for signs of seed maturity that that can often be cued by things like birds and other critters who might want to be going after the the plants at that stage. And I wait for the most amount of mature looking material. Sometimes it could be a fully deadened stock, but oftentimes I will cut before the uh, plant is totally dead um, or have has died back. And I will kind of cut the stalks of you know, mostly seeded material, kind of low at a base, and I'll gather them up on my painter's canvases. But in the past, I've used stuff like bed sheets or, you know, tarps or whatever. I just really like the painter's canvases because they're very, very, you know, they're tough and they just kind of last a long time. And it's nice that they're cloth and just wait for that stuff to dry down. And then once it's dried down, I'll get in there with a pair of gloves and you know a mask and just kind of remove as much seeded material as I can from the main stalks of the plants and it's kind of a nice process because you know a lot of the plant material can be returned to the ground so you know have a lot of compost material around the house at the end of the growing season from seed harvesting so once you get all that seeded material off of the stalks just kind of run it through screens. And sometimes that's all it takes to clean something. With the mint family perennials, it does require a little bit more finesse. So I use a box fan. I actually have two. I've had kind of like, I don't know, I guess it's like two foot by two foot, but it's like the standard, you know, big box fan that you kind of have seen around. But I really like minimal equipment. So I actually found like a little I think it's a 12 inch square box fan. And I've done most of my final seed cleaning with these mint family perennials with that little fan and just kind of set up a station with a, with a catch, like a container that can catch the, the seed and then a couple of bowls or sometimes buckets if I have enough seed material and just use the power of the wind. And, you know, sometimes you don't even need a fan. If it's a windy day, you can just use the power of the wind and a bucket to blow away the chaff and anything that is lighter than the seed. And ideally, most of your seed is going to fall into this catch point. And then you've got decently clean seed. And sometimes that's all it takes. With, with other crops that are kind of bigger seeds, sometimes you don't even need to do that fan. All you need is a couple of appropriately sized screens, like beans are just one that if you've got the right screen set up, you can clean beans with just a couple of screens and just some time of just breaking them out of their pods. 
That's awesome. I love that. Thank you for, you know, walking us through that. One of the things I love about seed saving or a lot of the other things we talk about, like we just did an episode about making flower essences. And I love putting these things out there for people that, you know, aren't super intensive in terms of equipment to get started where these things are just, you know, you mentioned patience and perseverance, and I would add in, you know, some elbow grease maybe, and then you're good to go and to get started and to have an adventure and try stuff and try to learn, you know, and it's just, yeah, I love that so much. So thank you for walking us through that. In terms of farming, um, you talked about the seed saving portion of it. Do you have any favorite farm tools? I always love talking to people about they're relying on out there on the farm. Yeah, well, I think what you just said is actually great because it just reminded me that, uh, you know, some some of your best tools are really within yourself in terms of, you know, focus or persistence or just the ability to overcome challenges and, you know, it can be heartbreaking out here with the squirrels. I mean, I lost a tobacco crop. I mentioned that doing hibiscus over at Steve's farm this year, uh, it's because last year the squirrels ate all of the uh, hibiscus pods in a day, had this beautiful crop and they just came and obliterated it a day. And then the same thing happened a year later with this woodland or sylvestrous tobacco that I was working with. I thought it would be hardy enough to happen here. So Whenever that happens and I see it and I realize that, oh, if I had just caught it a little bit earlier, you know, I would have been able to have a crop there. And there's just always this kind of moment after where I just like feel like so bad and defeated. Uh, So I I definitely think one of those tools is just simple fortitude and, you know, mental Mm -hmm. attitude. And it doesn't always come easy. But in terms of other things like more physical, you know, regular tools, also just kind of continual minimizing of equipment. We live, like I mentioned, by a creek. So there's just a lot of rocks here and the soil is basically classified as river wash. So that's actually eliminated a lot of kind of standard farm tools like a shovel or, you know, other, other things that you would be able to put in the ground very easily uh, without usually hitting large boulders. That kind of, that array of tools is now kind of out here. So in this last year, I've really been using a weeding hook, a cobra head, one of my favorite kind of, you know, modern new tools. I do use a digging fork to a, a little extent, but I make sure that it's it's really hardy. I, I've kind of moved from, I'm not really that into like these modern, you know, super tools or whatever that, you know, everybody's always trying to market. But <laughs> I, I have moved from like the wooden handles to like all metal tools just because I've found that they can handle stuff like rocks or things easier, or at least they're not going to break right away when you try to put them in the ground. So I have a solid metal Fisker shovel and a solid metal D-handled digging fork and then that Cobra head. And that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all that the land here allows me to do, you know, and other times I've used like a flathead shovel because I think that's nice for like shaping beds or moving materials, like a big pitchfork for compost. Yeah, yeah, just really basic and and less and less every year. Masks, (laughs) you know, masks. Yeah, it's that refinement, right? You know, um, you know, you mentioned we were talking about people thinking they have a black thumb earlier. And, you know, I always point to them and say, no, like, this is just steering us back towards 
the idea of you figured out there are some crops you shouldn't be growing there. And I think it's always getting back to that refinement, whether that's what crops you're choosing or what tools you're choosing. Um, and I tell people who tell me that they have a black thumb, I'm like, you just haven't figured out what you're supposed to grow yet, you, you know? And like what you were saying, figuring out like what tools are going to be best for your land. I love the cobra head weeder also. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing. I have like chronic back pain. So I have the one that's like on the really long handle. So I don't even have to bend down to use it. It saves me so much wear and tear on my body. Highly endorse that for those that are interested. So we've kind of walked through like the seed saving process. There's no better way for people to learn about seed saving than to just start trying to do it. For those that actually, you know, get some seeds to save, any words of wisdom for how they should be storing those seeds after they get them? Absolutely. Consistent temperature, uh, cool, dry consist cool dry spaces and consistent temperature i think is probably the best thing to keep in mind versus ideal temperature i mean i think there is an ideal temperature on our website i have a little section on seed storage mm -hmm. and i've cited um steve solomon's book gardening when it counts it's just a great book uh it's such a you know we were really into the biointensive thing and then kind of read that book and that was such a counter to a lot of that rhetoric around biointensive agriculture and he, but he he really gets steve solomon really gets into like the logistics of temperature and how certain increases in temperature can minimize viability you know for every x number of degrees that something rises it'll be less viable but for practical purposes cool dry place dark if you want to save something longer, you know, more than a year, you could put it in a container in a refrigerator or freezer as long as it's airtight. And yeah, I mean, if you're just doing home seed saving too, you know, a lot of this cleaning stuff that vexes me a lot of the time, it's mainly only because I like to have a generally marketable crop when I put something in a packet. So somebody's not opening something and just having a bunch of chaff, but if you're saving seed at home, as long as the chaff is dry and you get it reasonably clean to where you can see the seed, you know, that's, that's enough too. Yeah. You you're know, having like to you operate said, at like a, a bit of a higher standard in terms of like appearances and stuff for. Countering <laughs> the black thumb isn't necessarily about doing more. Like you just said, it's kind of about doing less or just mm -hmm. figuring out what you don't need to do or what you don't need to obsess about. Are there any plants, I know you mentioned beans as being one that, you know, are very easy to start saving seeds from it, people that are new to seed saving. Are there any suggestions you might have for plants to try to work with? Yeah, I think you had mentioned calendula in a past episodes as yeah. one. Uh, I think you mentioned like lemon balm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those ones just those really good herb plants that, you know, are just very common. Uh, it's kind of funny though, because calendula is so easy to grow, but it's just another one here that I, I can't really do at all. So the one that I've really been the most excited about mainly because it involves having a relationship with my friend is uh, the, the, the catnip. Uh, it was the first plant that I put here because I have a, a feline friend named Ivan <laughs> and <laughs> he loves, he's very outdoors reluctantly indoors at any given time in a day uh, and at nights. And the first thing I put down here was the catnip. And, you know, it's very weedy and, uh, you know, also very easy to grow, but it's also very seedy. And I just think that one's a really easy one to do too. And it, it's actually a great 
crop to grow from seed to seed because I, I didn't really realize I've worked with a catnip maybe four or five years now, like as a seed crop, but I didn't realize until last year that it's so good for, you know, catnip. It's not just for kitties. It's really for all kinds of uh, beneficials in the garden. I mean, I've seen so many small, I'm not an ornithologist. I wish I could name all these little birds, but just these little yellow bellied birds coming and snacking on the seeds and just spiders and pool moths and things like that. Um, and then in the end, through all of that, there's just tons of seed there and it's actually a really easy one to clean. So it, it's kind of my favorite one because it's not only easy for me to work with, I get a lot of it. I feel like it benefits so many of the creatures around me, but it also, Ivan just loves it during the, well, he loves it when it's on the ground and, you know, a young plant, but he also really loves this seed saving process that I kind of mentioned earlier with the, the canvases and the stalks and stuff like that. He, mm -hmm. he just really gets into it. You know, I cut down all the stalks and I staged them on this big blanket and he just, you know, he immediately knows what's going on and he comes over and he kind of lays on the blanket like he's a king. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's like there for weeks. And in fact, I prolonged the harvest. I'll do like a second and a third round because it's just so enjoyable to see that he's there and enjoying it. And I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of a real reason why I actually like to do production by my home because it's just it's so much about relationships, uh, you know, other human relationships, the more than human world, all of that kind of stuff. And that just makes it that much more enjoyable for me. So Definitely. I guess maybe it would, you know, for talking about ideal plants to save seed from, like, what is the one that is going to create the most, I don't know, positive or, you know, beneficial relationships for you? that's probably another like helper in, in guiding you along. And of course, also what, what survives, like I'd love to do calendula here. I've worked with it for so many years in our old farm, but squirrels get it. Oh no. <laughs> I got a, I got a bunch of calendula plants right now. You know, it's real much colder where you are. I heard you talking about frost in your podcasts that, uh, oh, yeah. we've yet to get anything. It's like upper eighties here today. So, uh, <laughs> the squirrels are just going to town like it's the end of the season. It's like I got all these calendula plants around and there's just like nubs where flowers were. There's just like it's just foliage and just nubs. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's such a bummer because I love suggesting calendula to new growers because the seeds are so cool looking. Yeah, absolutely. They're like little seahorses and it's great. I mean, they're just yes. so easy to grow. And probably for, you know, 90% of the folks that listen to this podcast, Sarah's right. But if you've got, you know, uh, two miles of habitat with ground squirrel, maybe it's not necessarily the best, best <laughs> one to try to do. <laughs> yeah. Don't give the squirrels your address. That was Quinn's mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, and you sent us some photos of Ivan and you with the catnip harvest that I think we're probably going to use for the cover image for this episode um, because he's, it just looks, it's such a sweet photo. I love it. But yeah, yeah I would have, a, I would have like a seed company based around, uh, you know, the plants that Ivan likes if, if I felt like I could make a living <laughs> off of doing it because that's just the most fun. And I mean, he gets on the blanket with the mugwort and stuff like that. You know, like recently I posted a picture of that, but it's just something about the catnip and just how they just imbibe and just, just revel in it. You know, it's like his crop and his plant and his harvest. So yes, please do post that picture. 
I definitely will. That's really sweet. Do you want to talk about any uh, upcoming projects and where people can follow your work? Yeah, absolutely. We just released the new for 20, new and new and returning. A lot of stuff is returning, has been in the catalog before, but it's back. New and returning for 2021 varieties. It's over 20 vegetable, flower, and herb. I forget if I said 2020 or 2021, but whatever it is, there it's new for this, the end of the year and mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of next year. And so that's kind of like the first time this there's ever been like this big of a release all at once. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, been packing seeds nonstop for the last week to kind of build up a critical threshold of supply for folks. So that's there. Um, I also want to just jump in and say that everyone needs to go check out your seed company website because just the art, I mean, you have a great variety of seeds, but just the artwork alone on the seed packets is so beautiful. So everyone definitely needs to go look at that. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, I, I, I've worked with a um, illustrator. Her name is Goda from the beginning of the life of the company. And it's just been pretty much the collaborative privilege of my life to have this like long, deep historical illustration archive of all the plants that uh, we've done. You know, she does a hand-drawn illustration for every single plant. And you mentioned the website. And even now she's actually started doing some of the more general graphic design, which is nice. Uh, And she did some of the seed production too, actually. She produced one of the tomato seeds. So that's particularly exciting. Uh, The Siskiyou orange tomato, um, she did the drawing (laughs) and the seed production. So that's kind of cool. Like there's just a lot of that, like beginning to end cycles, like they're in, it's, it's in kind of the packets and just kind of imbued in the company in so many ways. So yeah, there's the website, something Uh, I've been working, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say you and Goda, you also collaborated on uh, some comics together about seed saving, right? Yes. Yes. We have a a series of comics and there's only one currently but it's called the adventures in seed saving and we are working on a second issue uh, the first issue is about squash seed and the second issue is about tomatoes and kind of the idea with the series was to make something that was kind of captured like the kid but also like you know beginning gardener uh demographic so it's not like so you know, dumbed down that, you know, somebody who isn't just kind of beginning to do seed saving themselves wouldn't be able to learn something or glean something from it. Uh, But it's not, you know, complex that, you know, a younger child wouldn't be able to just go right into it. So we're, we're working on issue number two, which is about tomatoes, which I think is more applicable to a lot of small scale gardening contexts, because you can save really good tomato seed from one plant uh, we learned a lot from feedback from the first issue and how to kind of make the, the subsequent issue better. So at some point, that'll come out and that's available on the website. It's also available as a free PDF. On, on the website, there's a number of free resources. I, I try to do a lot of educational-based stuff that's free and free to distribute. Yeah, but I love that more- you're so committed to, because I love teaching people about herbs and I just want to put all the information out there and it's like, I, I know that to an outside observer, it might seem like counterproductive for you as being like, well, I make my living selling seeds and then I'm also doing all this education for, so people can 
you learn how to harvest seeds at home, but I, I just don't find that to be true. Have you like everyone I know who's into seeds? Um, even if you do seed saving at home, you're still going to be, you know, I'm so excited to get seed catalogs and get seeds from new companies. Yeah. So I just, has that been your experience as well? That putting out Absolutely. information? Yeah. Absolutely. Sarah. It's, it's, uh, it's re it's simple, but yet it's just this kind of re it's just, just so interesting. It's like this business model that's based off of reproduction and, you know, in that reproduction, there's just so much abundance. Mm. And, you know, I had a friend of mine recently added like discussion forms to the uh, plant varieties on the website. And she was asking if she could like post questions about saving seeds. And if she was worried that that was going to like cut into my business model or something like that i was like <laughs> no just do it yeah you know there's there's like you know there's definitely like a larger economic conversation to be had about agriculture for sure but generally speaking it's just a very like open source additive reproductive model that this is and i'm just really grateful to be doing it and have been able to make it work completely and I find myself as well as most people I know that are growing things that we sort of have this, uh, a little bit of that kind of Pokemon got to catch them all kind of vibe. So even if I'm saving all my own seeds, I still need to check and see what you have every year. So. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah, it's the same for me buying from seed catalogs all the time. I've got a seed library. That's just massive. I'm sure, <laughs> you know, a quarter of my storage unit now, that's just like the stuff that's off the catalog because, you know, I see something or I hear something, hear about some weird crop and I just know that I, yeah, Pokemon got to catch them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and speaking Ooh, of education for seed saving, um, you also have started doing a Patreon with videos about seed saving. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, um, it's been kind of a, a slow to grow project. I've kind of been trying to focus it on something that's really like has use value for folks. And this year I've settled on doing a lot more kind of visual educational outreach content. That's, you know, it, honestly just illustrating some of the stuff I talked about in this episode. I mean, this year, I've been doing like two posts a month. They're video posts. I usually just shoot them all at once with my phone and I just kind of talk about the crops that I'm working with. So I've got demonstrations for a lot of the mint family perennials, white sage, mugworts, just posted one, did a little one about hibiscus, uh, did one about catnip, did elderberry. Uh, I think I have some comfrey on there. So it's just kind of edu more, more in-depth educational content about seed saving and also just kind of want to eventually offer some more like behind the scenes stuff about the operation of the company because, you know, we've been talking about seed saving and, you know, being outside for an hour, but a lot of the, a lot of my work is actually behind a computer screen these days. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, I'm just like a administ, I'm just administration. So yeah, there's a lot that goes on indoors for being farmers. Um, I was talking about this with someone earlier where, especially with like doing a podcast, and I know you used to have a podcast as well, and you're talking about bringing it back. And it's just like, yeah, it's a lot of computer time that we don't realize <laughs> it goes into that. Um, yeah, for sure. And that was even the block to me getting kind of a Patreon going is because it's, it's, 
you know, there's, I have computer time and it's usually spent on administrative stuff. But when it comes time to like this long form editing and production and stuff like that, I have just been so lapsed, lax on free time that I just decided that the best thing for me to do is just to kind of go very free form with this project and make it, make it uh, kind of very rough and just kind of see how folks respond to it. And you know, if people want to subscribe to the Patreon and they want to, you know, make suggestions about the content they'd like to see, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to hear it. It's just a very open-ended thing right now. And it's just kind of been building in this last year. Last year, I did like a long form photo archive of all of the crops that I worked with in 2019. And this year it's been more video stuff. And yes, I do want to bring the podcast back and I do want, uh, I do want you to be probably the first guest on the the resurrected podcast because I want to know more about uh, you and uh, your context. Thank you. I so, would be honored. Um, yeah. And also, uh, Quinn has been kind enough to share one of those seed saving videos with us. Um, so there will be a link to that in the show notes so that everyone can check that out, as well as checking out you know the the seed saving comic also that he spoke of. So there's going to be so many different goodies in there that you guys will want to check out. But Quinn, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. It was so great to talk to you. I love the work that you're doing. And I really just hope people will do some seed saving themselves and also get some really awesome seeds from you at the same time. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been great to be here. Quinn has so much great knowledge to impart, and I really enjoyed talking to him. He also was kind enough to offer up quite a few goodies for me to share with you all, and I am so grateful for that. Check out the links in the show notes for the seed-saving comic that Quinn mentioned, as well as one of his awesome videos demonstrating some of his seed-saving techniques. That's going to be over in a public post over on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash foxandelder, and you can access both of those there. You also are going to want to jump on over to the Fox and Elder Instagram to enter a giveaway for seeds from Quinn's awesome operation, the Plant Good Seed Company. He'll be putting together a package to mail off to the lucky winner, and that giveaway will be running for the next week, so make sure you don't miss out on that. All right, y'all, I hope you have been enjoying these interviews. I've got another awesome one coming up for you next week, and then I'll have a few solo episodes lined up for the last part of the year as well. As always, I encourage you to reach out and stay in touch. I love getting to talk to y'all and finding out what you're up to in your farm and garden and just what kind of projects you're working on. You can connect with me over on Instagram at Fox and Elder or over in our Patreon community. Again, that's patreon.com slash Fox and Elder. If you sign up over there to support the show, you'll receive a 20 page zine in the mail from me every month and also get to participate in our community chats. I also share other bonus content over there for patrons as well. And it's that time of year. So I hope <laughs> I hope you will allow me a tiny plug here just to say Small Business Saturday is this week. So we are going to have some fun specials for our herbal products from the farm. You can pick something up for yourself or a loved one, including some new items that will be launching this week, or even a gift subscription to our monthly full moon zine. Nice, nice gift to give to those you love. And because it's not just a one-time gift, they'll get it for a few months to come. We're doing a big shop update this Friday for our new herbal offerings. And whether you get something from our shop or not, I hope that if you are making purchases this holiday season, that you'll do your best to shop small and support other small businesses as much as you possibly can. 
I know this has been a tough year for so many of them, and I want all of us to still be around in 2021. All right, that's all from me for now. Stay safe out there. Until next time, keep your hands dirty and your heart open.